Hey everybody, welcome back. We're the Smart Party. We're recording again and broadcasting to our nation of avid listeners after a, a summer break of uh, sunshine, gaming and beers, sometimes related, sometimes not, uh, where we catch up with my old sparring partner, Gaz. Hello, mate. All right, Baz. I've had an awesome summer. Have you too? Uh, yeah, I have had an awesome summer, actually. An awesome summer of uh, gaming and new inspirations and old campaigns coming to an end and new games starting, some one-shots, uh, loads of stuff. I don't know what we're going to talk about tonight, but if, if we run dry, um, I've got loads of events to talk about. And um, and we went to some together as well, which was really cool. Absolutely. Well, I think we're going to have a little bit of a talk about preparation, as unprepared as we are. But um, yeah. should we perhaps do a little bit of a review of Continuum? Yeah, 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 let's do that. I had a great time at Continuum. It's, um, uh, uh, yeah, for our listeners who don't know, it's a, a weekend-long convention of some standing held up in Leicester in the UK. Um, I guess it sensibly it started as a, uh, a kind of a carry-on from another convention that was mostly based around Chaosium's output, which is you call a Cthulhu and your Pendragon and that kind of stuff. It's, it's much more wider-ranging now. It's pretty chill only happens every couple of years um i've been to a couple uh you've been to loads mate so um so you know what's your perspective on it yeah pretty much since it was called continuum from whatever the old name was that i can't remember now compulsion maybe uh yeah i've been to them all i think um and they're good they're good very good it's in the the last university grounds you mentioned john foster hall which is perfectly fine it's student accommodation but it's cheap enough um, the food's a bit variable, to be honest, that you get there, but that doesn't matter because pizza places deliver, and uh, you get nothing but a stream of mopeds going backwards and forwards with various fast foods <laughs> for hungry gamers, which is nice. Um, and the, the sort of the, the committee itself's changed hands a couple of times, and new people have come and old people have gone, uh, but it still can, kind of trumbles along, and it's got a, a really sort of like um, stalwart following of people that come, so. Uh, there's a big freeform crowd, that's a large part of it, and there's several houses put to one side for these sort of freeform events, which is nice. There's still the old Grognards who'll happily do anything that's got Glorantha in the title. There's loads of Cthulhu, there's new games, in fact I think there's things like Kingdom and other freeform kind of stuff. Um, all kinds of stuff going on, and there seems to be more time just to hang out and have a beer as well, and just chat and you know chill out. There's loads of seminars on. Uh, there's other bits and pieces. There's just a nice central area where everybody seems to naturally gravitate to as well. If you're not in a game, you kind of head around the bar or that sort of area, and it's nice to sit outside because it's summer and just meet new friends and speak to old ones. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. It was um, it was a really good vibe, and I think one of the things I liked most about Continuum, I liked most about cons, to be honest, is that social aspect. And uh, and for you and me, I mean, we don't spend a lot of time in the same room together. To be fair, <laughs> we're oh, we on don't. the same screen, <laughs> but, but, and we're usually pretending to be other people, um, elves, <laughs> dwarves, women, other such crazy things. Um, so it was really nice to be in in the same physical location, and and all of our old buddies from from the early days of the Smart Party were there as well. It's great to catch up with Pete and Jules and Dan and and all the guys and Gary too. Uh, there's a second gas. Uh, and, and meet some new friends too. And I was really, really pleased to, to hook up with our old mates again and, and to see we're all still talking about pretending to be elves, which is what it's all about. Yeah, and I think the good thing about Continuum is I think it, it has suffered in the past from that sort of hangover from when it was really just a Chaosium Glorantham type con. 
Uh, and when people get asked about it, there's still some people will say that to their friends or to people who ask. And it's really a misnomer because I think last time was first time for Neil Gow, who came down from Newcastle Shear, um, and he loved it. And then uh, we had Guy Milner, someone we know from the Sheffield uh, crew, mm-hmm. who runs Go Play Leeds. If you're in Leeds and want a monthly gaming experience, he'll sort you out. Uh, and it was his first time as well. I think it was a, a little bit of trepidation about what, what we're going to do, what's going to be like. But he just you know, touched it like a duck to water, as everyone does. And I think that's true of many of the conventions in the UK. They can seem a little bit intimidating, but actually once you get there and just ask a couple of people what's going on, you fall right into it, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was a bit intimidated before we went. I always, well, I get I get a bit intimidated and nervous before I run a game session with my mates at home every week, to be honest, to get a bit of stage fright. So conventions just that multiplied. Um, you know, I wasn't sure what to bring, uh, how much to run, how much to play, what would go down well with the crowds. You know, you, you never quite know what it's going to be like. Even if you did go to the previous ones, you know, these things always have a certain vibe. But everything I prepared um, went really well. Uh, and I, I was lucky enough to play in some cracking games, and I think I got it just about right. I came home tired and happy, not exhausted, exhausted and miserable, <laughs> which can sometimes happen. Yeah, um, you know, uh, two pounds heavier and a, a few pounds lighter in the wallet, but that's good conventioning. So um, yeah, I, I had some some really good role playing mixed in amongst the socials and the pizza. Okay, so you mentioned you're sometimes a little bit nervous about these sort of things, so. Preparation probably fills a part of this. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I was in the Boy Scouts, so I, I've got the Be Prepared motto <laughs> at the back of my head. Uh, and if the one thing likely to iron out nerves or certainly mitigate some of that nervousness, it's having prepared or have an idea about what I'm doing. So when you were coming to the convention and you had to run, was it three different games initially you had lined up, like three yeah. different systems and everything? What, what sort of went through your head then when you were thinking, did you think, uh, initially as it got closer maybe that you picked too many systems or mm. were you just a little bit sort of happy that you got a good variety and you didn't want to like you know if you take the same game and the first session doesn't go well you're then worried that you might be stuck with the same stuff or what was your sort of thought process behind that yes yeah, that's yeah, a good question mate i mean uh, the, the thing with conventions is if you're going to run games at them and clearly there are going to be exceptions to this where you can just rock up and make something up on the spot but usually you have to kind of put your name down months in advance and you have to kind of declare your games as well well to be fair six months ago I was really into games that are probably not so jonesing for today uh, and in six months time it'll be different again so you have that in mind straight away you know what will I fancy running when it comes down to it um, and uh, for me because I've got you know lucky enough to get regular weekly gaming as well I'm always of the mind to try and do something a bit more sort of special or unique at a convention, something, something frankly, that I, I wouldn't get a chance to do at home. Um, and so that means I often end up picking stuff off my shelves, which I've always thought wouldn't it be cool if. But the trouble is I then sort of paint myself into a corner. If I'm going to run three games and I'm kind of learning three systems almost from scratch, plus writing three scenarios and pre-genning like 18 PCs that's actually an awful lot of work and even though you think you've got six months to do it in that six months flies by and then you've got like you know six hours to do it all in and <laughs> your printer breaks down and and you just you realize you've done quite a lot so for continuum I'd I kind of picked three games that I hoped although they were games I don't get to play that regularly at home I always really want to 
and I pick stuff that I thought I wouldn't have to do a huge amount of prep for on the basis that I was running three different games that I'm not exactly match fit on on a regular basis so so I went with 13th Age uh, which is uh, D&D style gaming so you know I know the I know the setting I know the, the genre I know the tropes my fear about that was that nobody would sign up because it would seem a bit vanilla from the outside uh, I went with Into the Odd which regular listeners to this podcast will know is perhaps a bit more steampunky industrial version of that kind of fantasy gaming but ideally with very little preparation I could do character generation at a time and we'd enjoyed our runouts of it as well what, about six months ago yeah. <laughs> and, and then Icons which is superheroes which I never really get to play at home based on a variant of fate that I've been studying quite hard in my ongoing mission to get better at fate uh, and I thought well why not you know that's the, a bit four colour bit different so I still set myself up with quite a lot to achieve um, but I thought I'd given myself plenty of time to do it so that was, that was what my thinking was at you didn't run so many games yourself I don't think mate but but how did you approach your GMing and playing duties this time around? Yeah if anything I'm getting a little bit fatigued with it now to be honest it's probably because I'm old <laughs> but um, yeah not as old as you I'll hasten to add <laughs> and never will be <laughs> you were um, when we were 20 yeah, and it's, it, that ironically, that in itself is never going to get old. But um, yeah, back to games. Uh, I, yeah, I realised at Furnace last year that that was my. I ran three more games there, and I'd run three games every year for ten years. So I've run thirty games at that one convention alone. Wow. Uh, and similarly at Continuum, you know, I've run at least two or three every time it's run, and for the last ten, fifteen years, whatever it is. Um, and I just actually wanted to play some games, but. Equally, I know that there tends to be a little bit of a shortage of GMs, uh, and some some you know some conventions are quite good. Certainly, the Sheffield ones tend to get an oversubscription of eager GMs, but quite often at other events, certainly the bigger ones, you're sort of struggling to get enough games up there because people all have different tastes, and you could have you know 100 games of Cthulhu up there, but if someone wants to play D and D, that's no good to them really. Uh, and you can try and encourage people to try different things, but ultimately. Um, I, I sort of got fed up with trying to work out what people wanted and to have to dedicate a lot of my convention to running games for people when people like, you know, the old Spartan Party members you mentioned, Pete and Dan and Jules and yourself and various other people I know from up and down in conventions are going to be there. And I wanted to give myself some time to do some games for them as well. Um, but, you know, as it happened, I, I did say, and this is where the preparation thing comes into, I think, I did say before I would take some emergency games in case some of the slots seemed a bit lighter, I couldn't find anything I wanted, or the organisers needed someone else to step up. But, you know, real life gets in the way, and I didn't actually bring anything with me. So I only ran one game, which I prepared quite well, um, a Savage Worlds one, uh, Savage Lankmar, and tried a couple of new bits in that. But, yeah, just, I think the sort of the idea of not preparing a game means that I end up not bringing stuff. Uh, and if I do bring emergency games, they tend to be ones I've run before, and I've got, like, a little... One of those poly pocket folders that's full of character sheets and some notes and a couple of maps or whatever, so I can just pick it up and I, I, I pretty much know what I'm doing before I get there. But so that's probably just my mindset is that if I don't actually commit to it and prepare for something, then I don't tend to have a game available to to run ad hoc. Really, it will be dead easy, like you say, to do into the odds, but I don't know. I think I have to mentally gear up for it. If you know what I mean, like know that I'm going to offer some games, and then there's more chance of happening. I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't have that kind of go-to library 
of previous con games. I don't know why, but I've always kind of considered games to be at conventions to be one shots, never to be run again, which is madness, really, because there's you know, there's yeah. new people every year, and and it, I could run the same game that I did two years ago, and, and arguably I could have tweaked it and done better pre gens and learned from that and. And every time you run a scenario, it's going to be completely different anyway. So I don't really know why I've given myself this this silly task, really, of coming up with something unique and flavoursome. I, I guess that's my aspiration, that I will always produce something that people are clamouring to come to. Um, and to do that, you know, running something novel seems to be the plan. But Yeah, well, that's, but that, yeah. that gets me interested, you see. I, I do the same thing. Like I, Even the scenarios I've run several times... When I've run one, and there's always more prep I can do in my head. There's always another map or some more character portraits, or you know, I could have thought about this plot line a little bit more or whatever it is. There's always some more stuff, and then after I've run it, I always have a, like a, a bunch of notes, thinking I'll do this, that, and the other, and then next time it'll be even more awesome. But then I can never be bothered with all that. There's always some new ideas popped into my head, and I want to make six brand new characters for a completely different setting or something, and that gets me interested and in, in wanting to do it. So. I understand that a lot of people get bored with doing prep, as in the actual, you know, the physical preparation of character sheets and or handouts, that sort of stuff. Um, because prep's obviously, even just thinking about what you're going to do counts as prep in my book. But I don't know. I think you've got to be interested in doing it. If you're viewing it as a chore, then perhaps you're not going to do as much. Uh, and I can see why people get fed up. But, um, you know, coming up with new ideas and new characters, I think that's really interesting. But then I guess we're from that school where we'll happily sit down with a traveller box set and make a bunch of characters. Well, yeah, but except that, you know, real life demands that that's, that's actually quite difficult to do. So, I mean, even for my weekly game, um, the, the regular gaming I do, I think I'm unusual in, in many ways. I think I'm unusual <laughs> in that probably 95% of the GMing I do is with pre-published stuff. And actually with that pre-published stuff I run it pretty much as written I'm not one of those people that just uses it as a skeleton or stuff like that you know I kind of try and squeeze the juice out of my my gaming library which which contains a lot of adventures and campaigns and and all kinds of stuff like that so I think that's unusual and um and back in the day I kind of collected those things as examples of how to write adventures with an eye on doing it myself and that never happened um and I don't know why that never happened, but uh, but now I just have loads and loads and loads of published adventures, and it tends to be what I fall back on. And I used to think that that would like ease the preparation, because all you've got to do is read it through and then run that. But what I've come to realise very very late in the day, all of our listeners now are going to be like slapping their palms on their foreheads, going, <laughs> "Yeah, you idiot!" But it takes just as long, if not longer, to read through a published scenario and make sure you fully understand it and maybe cover it with post-it notes and and perhaps even still do characters for it it's probably just as quick if not quicker to come up with your own ideas because you don't have to note them down in such exacting detail and that was an, that was an experiment that I tried at Continuum this year with with my GM notes and writing my own stuff from whole cloth really um and it was pretty much successful. And again, all I'm doing is stuff that, that most GMs probably started doing three weeks after they started GMing. Um, <laughs> but it, it made it made all the difference to me doing my own stuff. Yeah, I I think that's right. I, like a lot of my adventures are bullet pointed, mm. uh, and after the fact, you know, people saying, "Oh, can I have that scenario off you?" 
And you're like, yeah, and then I feel a bit embarrassed. It's like, well, yeah, but I've only got like 10 lines and some body stats or something. That's really all I've done, you know. But uh, that doesn't mean I've underprepared or not got any content. It just means that most of that content's in my head and all I need on the sheet are some reminders um, to write out a scenario in exacting detail. is actually quite tough. I've only written one out properly for publication and, you know, that was pretty system-like and stuff, but it's still probably overly verbose and, you know, the writing could be better and missing some of the ideas and... You know, it, writing something that somebody else <coughs> excuse me, so that somebody else can use it is quite tough. But writing for yourself to run a con, I think that's relatively straightforward. Well, I, yeah, but I always go too mad, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I've not um, not produced more stuff. Just generally, it's not because you know I'm some amazing artist like Kate Bush who only has to do one album every decade and everybody loves it. It's just that I give myself so much to do, so. For example, if I start doing bullet points, which is how most people start off, and you just start to sort of draft out your ideas and you put down a couple of bits to flesh out, probably within 20 minutes of finishing that first little burst of creativity, I'm looking up fonts and oh yeah, <laughs> um, and going off to me to me gaming shelves again to do a bit of what I call research on like a dwarven city or something. And then, and then I look down, and it's been like two months since I put down my initial idea, and all I've been doing is just rereading my gaming collection again and wondering, like, you know, should I publish this in softback or hardback? And it's nonsense. I, ha- I seem to have this kind of feeling that everything has to be in an amazing publishable state, and that if I do it any other way, it would be like a wasted idea that goes out too early, you know, like publishing sketches. But as it turns out, what really matters is what's going on at the game table and your players they don't know whether you're using a sketch or an oil painting really and, and your job is to is to help facilitate a great game on the night um, and, and I, I probably have uh, stopped myself from getting more gaming done or more production of gaming done by just trying to be too perfect um, and, and writing stuff out in long form with an eye on publication that will never happen because it will never get finished and it's one of those vicious circles yeah so what have you done anything about um putting stuff in the player's hands so to speak and i'll I'll give you an example of something i did for Lightmar, which is quite simple and again you know there's probably tons of gems who already did it before and i'm sure i did it years ago and then forgot and i've re-remembered uh, but quite a lot of published adventures and other things have uh, a list of rumours and that sort of stuff and you get someone to make a streetwise role and then you tell them some rumours and the mate next to him says, what have you heard, Magnus the Swift? And he says, oh, I've heard this, and says what the gems just said out loud. Uh, and it all feels a bit awkward and weird, and you know they might just say what he said, and that that's kind of like the limit of the role-playing involved. So all I did was chuck some rumours down on little cards, because uh, I play card games, I've got lots of those little plastic sleeves to put them in, so I did something that size. Uh, and then gave out one to each of the players when they went, when as soon as they said they were going to look for some information about this mission they'd been given, Chuck them all on each, make a, a, a roll for it. If you succeed or get a raise, you get extra pieces of paper and stuff. And then they all had their little, you know, bits and pieces. Uh, and then just, you know, they all kicked off amongst themselves. And one of them goes like, right, well, I know about this merchant X, Y, and Z. And someone said, no, hang on a minute, I've heard this. And that got the same information out there, but got the players to drive it all. And there's probably more game time happened then because the players were discussing amongst themselves what they've heard and all the rest of it. Uh, the other thing I did was just stick down um, a kind of brief description of who they got it from, like a name and then a trait or a couple of traits and that sort of thing. So 
one guy would say, well, I've heard this. Another guy said, I've heard the other. And it's like, yeah, but I heard this from Coco the Insocial Monkey, and he never lies. Well, I haven't put the he never lies bit on there. I just put the Insocial Monkey to all this bit of information. And that just fired in the player's mind. He, he thought he wanted to insist that this like magical monkey definitely didn't lie ever. And who's to say? Because it's the city of thieves and everybody tells lies to each other all the time. So just by putting a little bit of flavour on the card, like in card games where you've got those bits of flavour text, it enabled the players to power some of that. Now, some of that came from me because I had to think of 24 different people they might have got a bit of information from and I put some truthful facts and some half-truths and some outright lies on there. Uh, but then a lot of the actual in-game fun from my prep came from just players being, you know, a bit inventive or from deciding things on the spur of the moment themselves or having discussions amongst themselves. So how about that kind of stuff? Well, so you don't, you're not necessarily writing notes for yourself. What you're doing is writing inspirational bits and then throwing them at the players so the players have got something to do. Yeah, well, you know what? Funnily enough, uh, Great Minds, etc. I was running 13th Age for my home group last week and did exactly that. <laughs> so there was, there was 20-odd rumours on a table that you could roll on um, and I just snipped them up into slips of paper, scrunched them up and had them pick rumours out of her hat. Um, and and some of the players chose to read them out verbatim and some of them just folded it into their conversation and expanded upon it as you say uh, and you could just sit back and and that's quite fun prep it's it's way more fun coming up with like you know uh brainstorming 20 crazy one-liners than it is to uh to prep out um all the stats for like a 15th level npc wizard and and all of the background that will never come out in play yeah so, exactly you know, I'm taking a cue from some of the old old school stuff that's published these days, which is sparse, but it leaves enough space in there for a game to happen. Um, as to stuff I've physically done recently, and, and this happened a lot in my games at Continuum, I use montages. Um, and montages is just a bit of game tech that, that other people have probably used for decades and just called it the way they do it, but it's got an official name if you play 13th Age. Um, and montages are dead simple um, all that happens is that you as the GM you just whenever you want to fill in the gap between some of your set pieces that you might have in your plot so that might be a big chunk of overland travel or you know um, the people that they want to meet in town won't be arriving for until tomorrow morning so you've got literally some time to fill or some space to fill you turn to the players and say okay well what happens then in this intervening time can one of you think up like you know a problem that you've you've all been faced with um, and then you just encourage them to not come up with the solution to that problem but just to say what it was and it and and a player will normally step forward and you can kind of pick one that you know is up for the game and and they might say well you know we were ambushed by goblins on the way which would be a very basic but fine thing to say and then what happens is you pick another player or another player volunteers to say how that challenge was overcome. So what was the solution to that? No dice rolling, no nothing. It's going to be successful. You just, you're just telling stories at this point. But the person who offers the solution to the first challenge then comes up with a second challenge and a third player comes up with a solution to that. And if you've got five players, you end up with like five cool, colourful scenes and their solutions and that fills up 15 20 minutes sometimes less sometimes more but it's stuff you never had to prepare as a gm at all and actually i was blown away by some of the creativity that was coming out of the players and you know some people went for humor some people went for tragedy 
some people went for simplicity some people went for stuff that was quite convoluted and i see it in lots of games now as well and, uh, and guy did it for us in the feng shui game that he ran uh, he did a couple of smaller ones and it was like oh this is quite interesting as a player um, let's see if i can be on my a game and bring something really cool to the table and in my gm's notes for 13th age it just had the word montage written down and it was half an hour of role playing happened for one word of my notes and i was dead nervous about it i thought you know what if this doesn't fly but but fly it did and um and i actually ran a second game of 13th age that had a couple of montages built in and out of the six players you know maybe only half of them were really into it but it was perfectly cool if somebody didn't want to join in to just go well that's fine okay no problem because it's not the meat of the game it's it's the filling bits so, <coughs> and i really enjoyed um being able to not be constantly on the back foot going whenever i was asked a question thinking i've got the background in here somewhere <laughs> there's, there's an actual answer to that um, and i don't feel right about improvising because i might have to overrule myself later which incredibly is is what can happen if you over prepare or rely too much on other people's work or you're just you just want to play in one of those settings which we moan about constantly where there's 300 pages of encyclopedia um, so I kind of enjoyed being a bit freer with it I was concerned because I assumed that a three or four hour game would need a lot more structure to get the pacing right but you kind of have to just keep your hand on on all the buttons don't you and and move it along when it needs it and rain it back when it doesn't and, and that's as much art as science yeah i think uh, in the game i ran i sort of came i came a little bit of a cropper i perhaps should have taken things in hand as gem a bit more with hindsight but um it's basically a couple of like heist scenes you know you've got to break into a couple of different merchants and get some stuff and there's some backstory to it as well so there's some shenanigans um but the trouble was that what happened when you give the players that kind of like, okay, here's, here's your map of the, the merchant's lair and you've got to go in there and you've got to do X, Y, and Z, that they then could overplan it. A little bit of the old Shadowrun syndrome where you spend half or two thirds of their just planning it and then they end up just kicking the door in anyway. Uh, and I, no word of a joke. At one point, they were kind of in a dining room next to where the merchant and one of his uh, allies were speaking and they were arguing about whether they should, they should steal this teaspoon or not. And there's, you know, literally two characters with one hand on each, sort of like tugging it backwards and forwards, going like, we can't steal that. No, I want to take it. No, and it's just kind of like, as a GM, you sort of sat there going, how have we got in this ridiculous situation where this is kind of like the, the main point? But I think that's probably more a clash over the players and, you know, a few stellars down the neck of one of them didn't help at all. So he, you know, sort of turned up saying, I'm a bit drunk, but, you know. <laughs> and you're like, okay, then. <laughs> Um, so a little bit too free. And while it's good to have those montages, they're great. I agree. I enjoyed them in Guy's game. Um, if you sort of allow players perhaps too much latitude and don't have enough control of your game, uh, then it can perhaps get a little bit um, flabby in the middle. So it's probably worth having some stuff prepped yourself, I think, to add in. So what I what should have done, arguably, is either have the men with guns or you know the, the watch turn up or I may just happen to walk in because she was about to clean the silver, you know, something like that. Uh, and I don't really want to contrive it too much or I have a, a schedule for how often the maid goes into the dining room and what room they'll be in and when the cleaning cycle is. Uh, you just do some things to a certain extent that are dramatically appropriate. But it's just having those little bits in mind, I think, as I'm going to leave this up to the players to decide what to do, 
but I can't leave it totally up to the players because they might well just meander, especially if it's at a convention and it's a bunch of people that don't know each other and can't pick up on the social clues or these used to play in different ways. So it's like you say, you need you still need to have your hands on the buttons and maybe a few tricks in the bag to kind of throw out there if things aren't moving along a pace. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in my, my first 13th age game, there was definitely definitely a fear, um, unjust fear, unjustified fear, as it turns out, that that would happen in my game because I'd set it in a city, and I've always found city adventures sometimes the hardest to run because you've really got to be on your toes. If you're, if you're in an enclosed dungeon or a wilderness if we're talking fantasy games or if we're talking modern games you know if you're in a in a constrained situation like you might be in a submarine uh, or just on a military mission it's kind of easier to like keep everybody within the lines but but city-based adventures i've always found notorious for like you know people are just going to wander off literally down a side street yeah (laughs) (laughs) you have no idea what's at the end of that so I was conscious of it so what I've done is is like you've suggested I kind of deliberately put together uh, half a dozen kind of instigation scenes just stuff that would provoke interest from the players because I definitely let them pick their path set out the situation set out you know a, a fairly big goal for them to get to and plenty of time to do it in and then said so what do you do next and and I thought if it ever does start to to see the players turtle up or start to over plan or just flail around really just looking for like you know what do we do next if they were a bit more obvious minded and just wanted to be fed a plot was to make sure that I had the equivalent of ninjas kicking in the door even if that was just you know a cool scene which they could spectate if they wanted and just walk on by but it was a little bit of background color or they could interact with it and and that didn't take very much and I suppose that sounds like, like what I'm describing really is a wandering monster table but, <laughs> <laughs> but not one that I would roll on the day but I had half a dozen from which I selected and I think I used two out of my six and so they're all you know in some ways disposable you don't have to have them all there's no massive element of plot attached to each one which I which I thought would perhaps be a problem and make it directionless but it didn't because from the player's perspective A led to B led to C but they felt they had complete and utter choice in the matter and I didn't know what was going to be the next encounter it was whatever felt right based on the decisions that they had made you know and it and it sometimes it's as simple as thinking well we've we've had two big fights let's not just go straight into another combat let's have something a bit more talky and that sounds incredibly basic as a decision-making thing to do as a GM. <laughs> but but I've I've played in plenty of adventures where the GM wasn't making decisions based on those lines. <laughs> where you know we have four hours of diplomacy, and I just like oh, these dice want to get rolled at some point tonight. Please, mate. So I, I felt quite comfortable with it. What I would say is that thank goodness for some really proactive, interested, up for it players who were prepared to take these snippets that I threw on the table and make a game out of it as much as I wanted to provide a game with it. I think with another group who weren't as up for it, that game could have equally fallen really flat. And I think that goes to show that you can prep all you like, but you're only one-sixth of the people at the table. Have you found that as well, mate? Have you have you found your prep come to nothing in the past or, or sometimes very little prep has generated an incredible game thanks to your players? Yeah, all that's true. Uh, I think 
Yeah, it's very weird. Like I run a Delta Green game that was um, about carrying a package over a border, basically. And the first three times I run it, it was great. And there's loads of interaction between the characters. And it was run using the original Delta Green rules. So there wasn't anything baked in there to create conflicts or that kind of stuff. But there was sufficient background that the players took it and, you know, little internecine wars sort of like were created and fell apart and alliances were created and fell apart and all went really well. And then I ran it a fourth time and just nobody was interested. And they were just kind of like waiting for the next fight or whatever it was. And I couldn't. I was really at a loss in that game because it's kind of like, this game's worked three times. Why is it not working now? I don't get it. And it's just the sort of people you get at the table, potentially. And, and some players just want to be spoon-fed the next fight or the, you know point me to the next bit of plot and then tell me a story. Um, so it's a little bit odd. Uh, and equally, on the other side of the fence, I have had quite prescriptive adventures and had some players chafe against it because they don't want to follow the, the obvious path. That just seems too boring and you know, mundane for them. They actually want to go and, like, pull some of the levers somewhere else and see what's behind the curtain and, you know, make their own moral decisions and don't agree with what they should be doing necessarily or that sort of thing, you know. Or, uh, you know, So you might have a paladin, for example, but it might be a conflicted one because the players decided so. There's nothing on the character sheet that says that, but rather just play the straight down the middle of awful god. They might decide they're actually having trouble with their vows and they'd be leaning towards a different god or something like that. Which is fine. I think... I think either one's fine as long as you can get a group of players in a general consensus about how they want to play. I think where it chafes is where you've got kind of half a team of people who just want to be fed and half who want to do something completely different. And then that's where you get the kind of tectonic players of gamers rubbing together and the earthquakes start a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot... When you just get 600 people sign off for your game, there's not a lot you can do about that at the actual con apart from try and give each side a little bit of what they want, I guess. Um, and if you've done sufficient prep in terms of just thinking about what might happen in your story or what the characters are about a little bit, it gives you that flexibility in the heat of the moment to come up with the right sort of answers, if you know what I mean. As opposed to just having a published adventure and trying to think, I need them to get, I need them to get to them to, to the palace now because that's where the next scene happens. If you've got more of a general idea about how the story might go or the sort of things that happen in the background, I think you're better prepared in that case to give the players something they want, even if it's not necessarily what the adventure was that was written down. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed having, giving myself a break in that in that sense. You know, I had some ideas of like where some, some big conflicts would take place, but they didn't have to take place there. I hadn't you know, pre-written out battle maps and stuff with cathedrals on. It could just as easily have happened at the zoo or the docks or the magic university. Um, and that makes it kind of more fun for you as the GM as well because you're not entirely sure how the next scene's going to play out and you're like Wallace and Gromit where they're doing <laughs> that bit where he's laying down the train tracks as fast as he can and you know he's, as long as you're still going it's okay but one thing that um, that I would and this is a personal thing as well for me I mean having stepped quite a long distance away from the way that I normally prefer to run my games is I don't think I could go much further I, I I think I would struggle with showing up with with no plan particularly at all apart from maybe some great characters and an opening situation and then improving. Not at a con anyway. I know that there's plenty of GMs who that's the way they play all of their games and and usually and you can tell these GMs as well because within two minutes of meeting them they'll tell you that that's how they like yeah, to exactly, because they yeah. seem they seem really really kind of proud of their ability to just make stuff up as if it's as if it's as if it's a better way to play 
um, which kind of rubs me out the wrong way a little bit anyway. And I, and I've kind of been in too many too many games where it's clearly being improved and it just feels a bit more like porridge because of it. And and I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. So one of my all-time favourite adventure scenarios is Pharaoh for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons from way 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 back in the day, and it's it's simply robbing an Egyptian pyramid basically, but it's full of tricks and traps and little carvings and you know it doesn't matter whether you think it's a great scenario or not for me I really liked it because it just had loads of cool things in it and they were all better ideas than I could have come up with if you'd given me a million hours and all the research time (laughs) in the world let alone if you'd said let's play I don't know Dungeon World and we'll go and rob a pyramid I could never have improvised some of the cool little set pieces that were in there and you know the lines of script that were carved into the walls which all together made up a bit of a story in the background and so on I just couldn't do it and and in some of the con games that I've played where people are just here's your situation here's your characters it sometimes seems to me to lack that extra dimension of like exploration of of cool stuff and like those great scenes in movies where it all comes together and you think oh no how on earth is this going to hang together this is going to be amazing they can be quite satisfying if you're just working on like a relationship based game and seeing how people get on Um, but I have enough of that at work to be honest (laughs) (laughs) and I kind of of want you know I want the, the Death Star trench scene and I just don't think that that would be improvised up by me um, maybe you feel different, guys. I don't know. How far down the improv line can you go without losing the plot, literally? Um, yeah, I don't. I think good stories can come out. I think, like, you're right. It is generally about relationships and things like that. So, um, yeah, the, the sort of uh, Night Witches game I played came down more to the internal politics of the camp of these Russian fighter pilots than any of the missions we went on. They weren't really interesting. Um, in Monster Hearts, or in fact, most of these powered by the apocalypse things, it mainly comes down to the sort of interactions amongst people and who's going to come out on top and uh, what's the ultimate story for these characters. And I find it all quite interesting, that's fine. But then, equally, I like my, you know, more traditional gaming. I know people don't like using Indian Trad or whatever, but there's clearly different types of gaming. And I, I, although I do like Bork, I, I think that the trouble is with a lot of the indie games that I play is that you can tell that it's been made up, if you know what I mean. You know, like Even in traditional games, you'll make stuff up. As we've discussed, we might have a wandering monster table of camel merchants and other events that may happen if they're needed, and otherwise they won't, which is just making stuff up, or not, as you need to. And incorporating, play, incorporating players' ideas is making stuff up that they've made up and you know, using it as part of your adventure. You didn't write that down. So that's all pretty, you know, stuff that a lot of the indie games have now codified as ways of playing. You're doing that anyway. But I think in the, it, it's more behind the curtain there. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, and you can see like the big wizard's face, but you can't see the guy behind the curtain pulling the levers. Uh, and the thing, the thing that sort of like uh, disenchants me a lot of the time with the more uh, independent games is often you can see all the gears and levers moving, and there's a little bit too much. I'm going to do this. Is that all right? Because you have to make sure that other people are all right with it, because it's all a shared space, all that kind of stuff. And I, so for me, it's probably a little bit less satisfying sometimes you don't get those aha moments or you don't get the carefully laid plans that reveal themselves after a long period of time quite often because there's a little bit too much people making sure they're all right with it or 
coming up with a better idea and suggesting that as an alternative and that kind of stuff and it kind of breaks the flow for me although equally I have like those sort of games where you know revelations about a character's past come out that we're all amazed by it, even the character who came up with it or the player that came up with it for the character because it just it seemed like something that would have come up at this point but you know he hadn't pre-planned it he just sort of from the conversations we've been having for four hours it suddenly turns out well this would make loads of sense and just says it and we're all like oh wow that's amazing so you, you can still get you know those kind of like cool moments out of them but there are two different types of game you play for different experiences I think yeah that, that seems fair it's um I don't I don't really want to do box text that level of prep you know loads of the loads of the published scenarios that I run have that kind of stuff and I, I'm actually pretty good at reading off the page and making it sound like it's all right uh, I can do it but when it's done badly it's awful so I don't really write down box text for my NPCs in the games that I'm running at cons now but I do think about it a lot and you, you, you mentioned this earlier that a lot of your prep time is just done in your head probably when you're in the shower or commuting to work or whatever and, and that, that can be quite funny even if it never makes it down into, into paper format I kind of like my villains because I run kind of genre stuff that's always a bit pulpy a bit action adventure I kind of like to have some snappy dialogue but I just kind of run it solo in my head and, and and sometimes I you know take a few minutes, literally minutes before the game's due to start, to just run through a few things in my head again, and that seems to kind of salt away a few little one-liners or affectations or stuff that I can riff on during the game. So mental prep is is now having quite a big part for me, and I think it was you that suggested it to me, mate, to say like you know don't be afraid of calling that prep, you know don't don't yeah, don't absolutely. think unless you've got a word count that you're letting yourself down. And you're not, are you? Because like, I go running quite a lot, and that's brilliant thinking time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really have the opportunity to write it down because I'm running. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, even if I don't remember every bit of it, I think it just gets your brain in the right place. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, if you can write a little notes down, it helps because you tend to forget stuff, or I do anyway, or I'll get stuck on the same ideas and try and think of new ones and other ones leak out the back because I've only got so much brain room for them. So if you can, like, jot a couple of notes down. And I find them good when you come back to them. You know, you come back two or three weeks later and think, oh, rubbish, I need to get that adventure ready, which I haven't, still haven't done yet. And you find this little bunch of notes and it's like someone else has written them because you can't even remember the sort of, like, ideas you can't even like, this is awesome. But then you'll have another extra layer of ideas to kind of stick on top of that. Then you've got a bit of grist to the mill and you can sort of uh, chew it over a bit more and think of it more complexity or some different options that might occur which is all really cool and um, yes I think another thing one of the things we played at Continuum or I think you'd left by this point uh, we played a Pendragon game and it was a little bit disappointed because the GM hadn't prepped for some things I think or didn't or wasn't interested in them uh, and it just he sort of disenfranchised the players so we'd kind of gone to this place and we knew that we were supposed to be in this tournament and we did things like send the squires out to get some information from the kitchen maids and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and one by one, they all came back and had nothing to tell us. So we sort of like tried to speak to them. The knights were there and they were like, you know, we're not interested in talking to you. And came to the field of battle and there's two other knights. And we're like, okay, what are the names? It's like, it doesn't matter. They'll be dead soon. And it was all this kind of... The GM had obviously done prep. He had some maps. He had a story. He had a plot line uh, and all this kind of stuff. But he had nothing for us when we were trying to get just things to happen do you know what I mean so your prep's not necessarily just which way this is this scenario going to go and by hour two I need to have this reveal and I need stats for this guy because they're definitely going to fight him on the bridge 
you just need a bit more kind of texture to what's going to happen, or for me anyway, because I'm, I'm sure that other players may well have liked that game. But for me, I just felt a little bit disappointed that any time I tried to do anything or ask a question, I got nothing back. Uh, and I think you probably need a bit of a thinker's gem to have a bit of flexibility. When players do something you're not expecting, you've got a bit of an answer. And it doesn't take much. But if you've tried to investigate this town, having been sent there by the plot, and then there's no rumours or no information, it feels a little bit weak source to me. Yeah, yeah. There's... Um... I heard this on another podcast and I can't remember who said it, so I'll paraphrase and pass it off as my own, which mirrors my <laughs> scenario preparation quite a lot, actually. But it was something like, you know, GMs can often get make a mistake and that they can think that giving players decisions to make in the game is which spell to cast or which attack manoeuvre to pick. And that's the that means the players have got loads of decision points. But it needs to be on a much more macro scale than that, doesn't it? It needs to be which villager to approach, which village to go to, whether to go to the village or not. That's where the decision points have to be. And you have to be prepared to to take the adventure down either of those choose-your-own-paths. It's not about adjudicating on a second-by-second basis or you know, um, giving people the, the choice of three abilities to use, even in a conversation. That, that's that's the mechanical tactical element of the game the strategy will be defined by the players decisions and if the players can't make strategies then they're not really probably getting the game experience that they were expecting I mean players don't I don't think show up to conventions thinking we're going to make up the story unless it's pitched that way you are expecting to join in on a great interactive movie that's going to take a few hours and come to a conclusion but you don't want to be a spectator all the way. And you certainly don't want to be offered the chance to go on the journey but then have nothing to see on the way. <laughs> that, that's, that's just a very, very dull German noir film. Apologies to Germans and noirists. I don't know why I picked that one up. <laughs> yeah, but well, it's not God, Michael Bay. No. <laughs> I think films and, and scenarios need to be a bit Michael Bay sometimes. Yeah, I think I want somewhere in the middle. But yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I remember a game I played at uh, Concrete Cow and it was really weird. It was Inquisitor or Rogue Trader or something like that, one of those kind of 40k properties. And we kind of turned up at this planet and we we were told about three possible missions and they were all like dodgy. So we're like, oh, am I getting a bit of trouble for doing this? And one's going to this like alien planet with like cool forbidden technology on it that's got this interdiction squad there that you'd have to somehow sneak past. And, you know, three other equally cool ideas. And while we're trying to mull over which one to go to, an Inquisitor talk turns up and tells us to go and do a fourth thing. And it's kind of like, okay. And we, we, we tried to like book the trend a little bit, but it was clear the GM wanted us to go and do the fourth boring option. And I don't, I can't understand why you'd give your players, you know, you dangle these carrots in front of them and then go, but you can't have any of them. You've got to go on that, that boring glass of water over there. Why would you do that? Do you know what I mean? So, I'm all for adding a bit of like flavour and texture to your to your adventures and having a bit of tapestry in the background, but you know, don't offer up ideas if your players can't go for them. So if you're going to do that, I think you need to have a plan in mind for how you what you're going to do about that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? So there is a bit of a line between making sure you've got a rich world that you've thought about and cool things that could happen, and then actually be able to deliver on them. I guess so. Probably what I'm saying is don't try and uh, get too excitable about at this limitless city that you're in or whatever it is that, that you've got in front of you, you still need to offer some kind of direction 
uh, and hints and pointers to go in the right in inverted commas direction for your story or how you see it or what you've prepped for there's still a little bit of guidance needed and sometimes that's not so much just railroading people but uh, choosing carefully how you describe things you know over describe the thing you want them to go to and under describe the other stuff around there just to let them know that there is a world out there as well they're not just on a train track yeah i mean it, my 13th age game the first one i ran was it was pretty blooming blatant because I really wanted people to like get stuck into the story I prepared. So I had everybody, it wasn't quite in media res, that's like a typical starting way, isn't it? You know, you prep your first scene and, and you chop out as much of the story as you can in, to in order you to enable you to start in that first scene. Because there's always, well, I mean, you know, you don't have people sitting in a tavern approached by a bearded wizard saying, would you like to undertake this quest? Because the players will go, no, or shank that wizard or something <laughs> or burn down the pub. So yeah. Yeah, if you're lucky, they'll shank Instead, yeah. if you're lucky, yeah. So you've got to have them you're probably on the other side of the first dungeon door with, with orcs running at them, really. <laughs> and even then they might go, a door you say, well, we're back behind it and close it. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. So... The 13th age game started with them all sitting on a rooftop, having been assembled at this city, like Avengers style, by a mysterious NPC who pretty much told them, this is what's going to happen tonight. I need you to fix it. Don't let me down. Off you go. And luckily, the players were more than willing to buy into that because I think that was kind of a bit meta. But it's like, we've got three hours. I'm giving you a really clear mission here. <laughs> and, uh, and they were happy to go for it. What I, what I got nervous about you know, all the way back to the start of this conversation um, was what the end of the game was going to be like because, and this is what I wanted to ask your advice on or your opinion on it at the very least, is when I'm prepping a game, prepping the start doesn't seem to be a big issue and thinking about how the game would end doesn't seem to be a big issue. I can have really good ideas for the beginning and the end and I can fill in the rest with montages. The trouble is the end kind of depends on some dominoes falling in that direction and what what I was nervous about was that the big climax I kind of had planned if the players did well technically speaking in the adventure that big climax wouldn't happen that would almost be the victory condition that they would stop the big ritual and the big explosions and the massive fight and the or whatever end it is you've got in sight that kind of doesn't happen if the heroes do quite well so I kind of had to have a few things in reserve and I kind of ended up prepping stuff that didn't really get used or just it was a bit vague in my head. I wasn't sure about the climax of my game because it's so because I didn't know how it was going to go in the start and the middle. Does that make sense? So by reducing my prep, I kind of made myself more nervous about the climax than I would have done if I'd had it all laid out encounter by encounter. Do you worry about that? Nah. It'll work out three. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I know what you're saying. I did have a Pendragon game where someone just basically one-shotted this dragon and killed it, and that was like, oh, okay. Um, now I've suddenly got to think of something more dramatic to happen because the thing, the thing that I thought was going to be a massive fight at the end just has now fallen over and died. So I'm not sure what else to do. You know? um, but then, the, you know, I just had, kind of had to have a bit of a political thing at the end about who would marry the daughter or that, that you know, there's something else you can always layer on top to make a decision or uh, what about this thing that happened earlier on, right, you know, everybody fates you for your success here, however, look at all these people you've pissed off along the way to make this stuff happen and save the city. 
you turn around to sort of say we've stopped this ritual and well as far as the town's concerned they haven't said anything happened so they want to know what you've been doing all night and why you've been burning warehouses down etc so there's always some like some it's, it's a way if you look at like um things like spaced the old tv series and and that sort of thing it's that kind of reincorporation and foreshadowing thing so as you're doing your wallace and gromit thing and laying down the tracks um at certain points, pick up bits of track behind you and just put them to one side on a bit of a note and say, right, I remember they've done this. I remember they've pissed this person off. I remember that this person's relying on them and they haven't gone back to them. And you can just you can make a little catalogue of stuff, consequences that may have happened from their actions along the way. And then if your big climax isn't coming off quite how you thought it might, you can kind of look at this sort of wealth of information that the players have given you throughout the game and throw some of that back or think about what a cool twist or... You know something around that that might happen, or a consequence, or something else. You know, make it personal for the characters. So it might not be that you know the moon dragon comes down and destroys the city or something like that, but there might be personal things to their characters based on the stories they've created that you can then reveal to them again or present them with a new challenge right at the end to say, "And how do you feel about this? What do you do about that?" And it's not like you know fireworks going off and all the rest of it, but it will be personal for the players and the characters that they've grown to love and, and done stuff with over that time. I think it's probably that, that's probably the best advice I've got for you. If you're not going to go down the whole like video game route of having several endings for your game, depending on which path the adventures took through it, you know that sort of thing, which seems a bit too much like hard work, frankly. Make well, it- yeah, and that that's exactly where my brain was going at certain points. But but no, I, I like that suggestion very much. And I think you know the other thing that I've learned, you know, having only been GMing for 35 years, it turns out there's still lots to learn. Is is not to be too precious about your blooming plot, yes, or your NPCs, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or your or your ideas, or your monsters, or the, or even the characters, because it they are all ultimately disposable, and anything you don't use is never really wasted because you can just recycle it into future games. And 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 if I were prepping a weekly campaign, clearly nothing would get wasted. It could come out next week, week after, or even six months down the line. It's or just get reskinned. So I guess you know. My prep definitely benefited from me being brave to just have a few sheets of A4. And I think lots of the barriers I had were just from from playing in games where I've seen GMs just go off two sheets of A4 but not run a great game. But that doesn't mean it has to be that way. And and, and I think actually some of the better games I've ever played in have been GMs who, who've done a lot of mental prep, so much so that they've deceived me with the sparsity of notes. Yeah, come over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, I had the the benefit of sitting down with Neil Gow, who's a GM who I rate, and um, many people do. And, uh, and we had a, a pint that night, uh, and he played in my game and played a fantastic character. We actually compared GM's notes, and that's something you don't see enough of. We physically got our books out and our bits of paper, and I said, "What do you use?" And he and he looked at mine. I looked at his. Um, and they were broadly similar and but it was good because it's a fella I trust and unlike those guys who seem to take that kind of they think it's noble to run with nothing he just found a method that really worked for him and could explain it um, and it, it just helped and it, I felt like I'd been given the permission to to just run the games the way I like to do them uh, and that, that was really helpful and and I, I think you know there's, there should be I'm going to personally make more time at cons to do that um, if I if I speak to a GM. It's not like you know, can you give me the scenario? But just can you you know show me how that works? Can I have a look under the engine, under the hood, on that one? Because you know I really like that bit. Did, was that you know was that made up on the spot, or did you have that planned, or 
did you have any dialogue down you know what to use i just like seeing the technology that people use whether it be index cards or a couple of images or, or whatever it is they do it's all got to go in my toolbox yeah, no, that's a very good point. I mean, weirdly, as long, you know, the decades we've known each other, I don't think we've ever sat down and compared GM notes. Uh, and it seems really odd. And now you've said that, and I, re- I remember seeing you and Neil swap your little leatherette box round. Like, why haven't we done that? I don't know. I've never looked at Pete stuff or vice versa. Seems weird that we haven't like used this massive resource of all the other gems are at the convention with you to do a chat. Yeah, I know that's, that's that's a good one, Bass. I shall note that down for future conventions. I think maybe there's, it's not like this, the Mason's Guild or anything, but perhaps people are a bit nervous about going, this is all I had to go with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, well, well, I want to applaud you for that then, because it was great, because I'm certainly not going to go up to GMs who gave me a terrible time and say, can I see your notes? <laughs> <laughs> Just a spit on them. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I know that there's, um, I mean, I've, I've done an awful lot of proofreading for people um, and editing work, actually, for stuff for publication and publish stuff myself as well. And, and, and you know, it's quite good to see that. But, it, but as you said early on, mate, it's quite a struggle to write something up properly for publication. But it is quite easy to pull it apart and see where people's thoughts were going and so on. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think con GM notes or just GM's notes if everyone wants to be brave enough and I would be as well it's like you know take some photos of your notes chuck them up not for other people to run from them but just to get a sense of like you know how do you construct your lists if that's all it is I'd like to see that yeah that'd be cool send them in guys Um, I just want to touch on another point that you mentioned and you've sort of said two or three things that have raised this up and I've not had a chance yet so I'll just shoot on it in at the end but um, it's some prep combi using things from other games uh, so, for example, the montages from 13th Age being used in Feng Shui, or when you were saying you shouldn't be too precious about your NPCs, that sort of stuff's uh, in Apocalypse World, where it says, you know, all the NPCs should be under crosshairs. They should be ready to die at a moment's notice, but you should be fans of the player characters. That doesn't mean to say the characters don't come under any trouble with that, obviously not. But you should be kind of on their side almost as the gym. Like, you know, you're going to put them under a lot of pressure, but you want them to win three, or you want to, you know. It's the NPCs that you just want to be able to constantly be under crosshair, ready to die at a moment's notice, or to suffer, or to be fallen away. And, you know, so there's quite a lot to be gained actually in terms of prep and inverted commas from just reading other game systems or seeing how they do things. And you can nick little bits from all over the place and use them in your game, even if you don't cut them whole cloth. It might just give you a little bit of an idea about something you can do. So. I definitely recommend people have a bit of a look around at other game systems as well. Certainly a lot of others, like the cheap indie ones that might have some cool ideas in. You know, don't be frightened of you know, just nicking other people's ideas basically and doing something with them and seeing if it works. It might not, but you know, shake and bake and try some things out and you might come up with a new favourite tactic. No, it's absolutely the case because I, I read GM's advice in all the books I get, even if even if I drop it immediately after that. Simbroom, looking at you. <laughs> um, and and funnily enough, Powered by the Apocalypse games read really, really well. And it is really good advice. And it, I just find myself nodding along with all of it. And I guess, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about tonight is if, if people are big fans of Powered by the Apocalypse, they're probably thinking, yeah, that's a Powered by the Apocalypse game you've just recommended for the last hour, mate. You're talking about fronts and setting up triangles and, and having bangs and all of that kind of stuff. And I think they're probably right. And I think that's going to be a project too because I don't have the nerve to show up at a con game 
with some playbooks and a situation. That would be getting more and more out of my comfort zone. And I think I'd like to play it a lot more at home before I was comfortable with doing that. Um, but, you know, maybe that's one for us as well, mate, because we've investigated a few games. And, and I think that's a game that we've, we, we would both like to get more juice out of if we could and incorporate some of the stuff we've talked about tonight. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Well, we'll put it on the list. In fact, I think it already is on the list. But uh, yeah, we need to have a look at it at some point. Um, and it is odd because it is one of those games where, like you say, everything we've talked about for the last hour, or a lot of it, could easily be attributed to those Powered by Apocalypse games. Yet, when I've ever sat down to play one or tried to go one, I don't seem to get that stuff out of them. It's, it's very odd. But there's there's probably some juice in there somewhere. We just need to ring it out. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, uh, that, well, that was good. Um, I suppose summary for me, Continuum was brilliant. I found it really rejuvenated and re-inspired uh, my gaming for the year. Uh, a total change of pace from what I do on a weekly basis, um, and I really enjoyed the games. They were all very varied, and I, and, I, and I came away from Continuum buzzing with new ideas, um, and even wrote some of them down. So that's good news. So yeah, it really worked for me. So you know, cheers to the guys who organised Continuum, and, and very much cheers to the guys who played in my games or, or ran games for me. I had, a, I had a cracker. Thanks. Yeah, I had an awesome time as always. Good to see all you lot too. Um, and I just say for everybody who uh, hasn't run a, a game at a convention yet, have a go. Why not? Um, if it helps, go to a little one. Uh, and the if you're worried about prep, I think as we've sort of proved tonight, you don't need a massive amount. You just need a little bit. Run a short game to start with and see what happens and get some nice friendly players like me or Baz to join in and we'll guide you through it. Okay, well, thanks for listening, guys. It's been awesome as always. Do feed in your questions and such. Thanks to Shane for prompting me on my ideas with this question that we've discussed tonight. Uh, and if anyone else has got anything else that they think we should go through, we're always happy to share our opinions whether you like it or not. Yeah, nice one, guys. Speak to you soon. Cheers now. Bye. Bye.